Welcome to this episode of Bound to Context. I'm your host, Ryan Schreiber. With me today, I have Wes North. Uh, welcome to the program, Wes. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, cool, Wes. Well, Wes is the AVP of Tech Ops at Cornerstone On Demand out in California. Yes, I am. So tell, tell our audience a bit about yourself and uh, the type of work you do. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, so uh, I'm the uh, AVP of Tech Ops right now at uh, Cornerstone On Demand, but I've been spending the last, gosh, I want to say it's going to be about a decade now uh, working with SaaS companies. Uh, small to mid uh, Cornerstone is obviously the largest that, I, that I've worked at uh, over the past six, uh, six and a half years now. Um, specifically, what I've been doing is trying to figure out how to solve complex business problems with technology, right? I mean, nice, I think that's, nice. that's generally yeah. the, the theme, right? Um, but the last three years have been really interesting because it's it's been about moving Cornerstone into the public cloud space. So for the last 10 years of my life, a lot of the companies that I've worked at have been trying to figure out how to move from sort of an on-prem co-location environment while they're building new products and services into the cloud. But how do they take their sort of uh, crown jewels, right, and and make sure that they can move it efficiently? And I'm, when I say efficiently, I mean performance, obviously, but then there's also the expense management aspect. So the last three years of my life uh, at Cornerstone have been about figuring out how to move us into public cloud, uh, specifically AWS and, and Google Cloud. Um, and then um, this last year, uh, I have actually just finished up uh, introducing a, a, a multi sort of CDN strategy for Cornerstone. We have very large dependencies because we're a global software as a service provider, a largest human you know, talent, man, uh, excuse me, the largest uh, unified human talent management uh, company in, 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 in our space. Uh, and I think we have around 7,000 enterprise customers, right, in wow. 180 to 190 countries. So we rely on these technologies like CDN solutions, Akamai, et cetera, rather heavily to accelerate, you know, the end user experience. So the last uh, year and a half, two major initiatives that I undertook were moving Cornerstone from uh, our co-location DR strategy into a hybrid sort of native AWS solution which literally avoided a lot of you know, unnecessary capital expenditures. And then on top of that, introducing things like multi-CDN strategies, it's also helped us sort of trim down our operational expense, but then adds a nice mix of technologies into our portfolio so that we can start to tier you know, our services that we provide to our client base. So in a nutshell, yeah, the last 10 yeah. years have been all about how do we get into the cloud and how do we, how do we make it work effectively and, and cost effectively and efficiently? Oh, wow. It's, it's, uh, I hear a lot of clients these days, you know, they're, they're, they're building out for new in the cloud for certain. They're still typically bringing some things from where they were uh, to sort of there. Um, in the midst, they're typically doing some sort of agile transformation. They're upskilling yeah. all their engineering. They're talking about cloud first. They have all these sort of initiatives and they're all kind of sort of intertwined. Um, but I think yeah. what's really interesting is it, it a lot of it get, does get back to as you pick up an org and a whole company and pick it up and essentially move it to a whole new capabilities. You have to really rethink like all yeah. of those things you have and, and how you architected it on prem and now how you're architecting it or should architect it. In, in sort Absolutely. Of a so, you know, yeah. with, with that, with that, you know, sort of background, how do you approach? So, you, you know, in, in infrastructure, I know you've been working and we've been having conversations for, for a long time. You're very much into that everywhere. You when we started to talk, you were in physical data centers. I mean, you're, you're like building out yeah. physical data centers and now it's a lot in the cloud. Like, 
how do you approach problem solving? Like, how do you how do you frame that as a problem, and then how do you orient around like, okay, this is this is sort of our methods or walk us through kind of your approach? If you sure, will. yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think it's important to remember that when when you're dealing with sort of problem solving, um, I always like to have the first check mark, which is clarity. Like, what is it I'm trying to solve? Um, if I don't have a really good understanding uh, as a leader within the organization, or even as a, a, a tactical uh, individual contributor that has, you know, a huge amount of responsibility for our infrastructure, if I don't have that clarity, then I could make decisions, obviously, that move us in the wrong uh, direction. So one of the things that we've done uh, at Cornerstone is we've really emphasized the need for clarity. And so I always like to start things with a problem statement. In the case of building co-locations, right, physical data centers um, versus the cloud, one would think, right, I mean, I've been at Cornerstone for about six and a half years. Um, why weren't we in the cloud six and a half years ago? I mean, the cloud's been pretty mature for quite some time. The challenge that I've found with a lot of companies, um, the last three that I've worked at specifically, is, is either a combination of two things, but, but more, more often than not, it's that the performance that they gain on-prem is very expensive to run in the cloud. And you have to make a trade-off decision. Where are you going to invest your human resources? You can invest them to optimize software and make it you know, effective to, to exist within a cloud infrastructure, or you can do sort of just the standard lift and shift approach and hope that it's not going to be as expensive as running in your co-location. Uh, we actually went through a, a period of time, I think in 2016, Brexit hit. And when Brexit hit, we have a very large client base in the EU. And so it was, it was very impactful for Cornerstone to have to deal with Brexit. Clients were very concerned about data localization and privacy issues. And so we needed to respond to that by building new data centers or at least putting our product in an EU-centric region. And so our CTO and I talked with our CEO and, and the question came up, are, are we ready to move into AWS at that point or, or Azure or Google, which one is it? Um, so we went, we went and actually did a, 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 a benchmark of all three of these major cloud providers in, in around 2016 and 2017. And Amazon came out on top uh, for various reasons. Although I would say that Microsoft Azure tends to be more focused on data privacy and, and you know, having that more complete package around it. Uh, Amazon sort of like, I, I look at them as sort of like the Home Depot. Um, you know, we'll show you how to build it, but you got to do all the work yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I like that. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think I think for us, um, you know, we knew that we had to respond to that that you know sort of international issue. Um, we went through the analysis, and the, the biggest regret I had at that point was not choosing the cloud because our software footprint was so aggressive with the types of I/O that we're running on our backend storage systems, the database, the size of the databases. I mean, of course, so we shard at the database level. So if you have, you know, seven thousand different enterprise clients with four or five different environments, you know, you could literally have thousands and thousands of databases that you're managing. Yeah. And that's sort of what we had to deal with. Um, so that, that was a very interesting uh, problem to solve. And I remember being on the call with the CTO and he said, Wes, we got to call this. What do we want to do? Do we, do we want to go to the cloud or do we want to go here? And I said, look, my, my technical side, my background in technology and engineering that dates back many years tells me that we should be going into the cloud. The business side of me, which I purposely went and got myself a classical education and you know business administration, right? Looked at it and said, you know, the risk to the cloud is so extensive. I mean, we had really six months to build this thing out, and with, with, without knowing how to fully automate the infrastructure, we had some good automation in place, but not nearly enough to be successful in the cloud. We chose to do the co-location route, 
Fast forward three years later, we're building out all new net new environments with virtual data centers in, in Amazon as well as in GCP. We actually have our, our machine learning platform hosted in, in Google Cloud. Yeah. And then we have our main product line hosted in uh, Amazon. And, uh, then we, and then we also have those obviously in various regions where we do business. Um, but, but at the end of the day, uh, it took us three years to realize an end-to-end -end automation vision. So if I would have gone back in 2017, I, I sort of look at it retrospectively and I'd say, well, hindsight's 2020. Would have loved to have been in the cloud. But knowing what I know now after two and, two and a half to three years of infrastructure automation development, and we're talking everything, Ryan, soup to nuts, from SQL to firewalls to load balancers to, to complex implementations of CloudFront and AWS, which has uh, sort of exceeded some of their capabilities. Who can exceed Amazon's capabilities? But yet, in yeah. certain ways, you, you find out that you can because they've got just a plethora of different things that you can work on. So anyways, in a, in a nutshell, I, I, I wish we would have gone to the cloud at that point, but I'm very glad that we did because it would have still taken us around two to three years longer to get that end-to-end -end automation in place so that you can be effective in that, in that new realm or world of existence. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because a lot of the early migrations felt like the automation was a, hey, wouldn't it be nice if one of these days, and now what you're describing is, you have to take that kind of automation first approach if you're going to get into the cloud. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not you're not really sort of leveraging the potential of it. And and right. And 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 so therefore, I think that that's something that even I've noticed in my last you know number of years doing this. And we've always been sort of infrastructure as code driven, and we've talked about this as well. It's like how Absolutely. you have, if you're going to get into the cloud, you know whether it's cloud formation or Terraform or even the CDK. Uh, these days, you have to take a very code-centric way of laying down that yes. foundational footprint. Um, because if, if you don't have that, um, then no matter sort of what workloads you're putting out there, um, you're not really going to get the benefits. And to your point on the cost, like, yeah, you know, I don't have a ton of experience with um, with jobs with high I/O and stuff like that. But you can quickly run up really expensive bills um, oh, in, yeah. in the cloud if you're if you're not careful. Yeah, benchmarking for us was incredible. We we actually used a company called Movere uh, mm -hmm. that has been since bought by Microsoft. So Movere is very fascinating. Uh, you install some agents on all of your hardware. You run it for about thirty days. It sort of benchmarks your system and tells you what your min, you know minimum, medium, sort of peak, you know, uh, use cases and load averages are. Yeah, and then what they do is they sort of show you like here's all of your hardware and infrastructure on prem. Here's what the sort of alternative would look like in the cloud. And here's the costs without automation, by the way, if you're gonna run all these things 24 by seven. Uh, that first analysis showed us that we, the cloud was like obviously 10 times more expensive. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. which is funny because whenever you do the analysis, it's always more expensive. <laughs> you know? It is. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I'm right there with you. I think we had, to, we had to do that analysis and benchmark everything to understand sort of what the risk potential looked like then once we decided that, okay, it made sense, we set on the trajectory of, of actually doing the infrastructure as code work. Now we, we're, we're a heavy sort of uh, uh, cloud formation shop. And I think we're looking at some, some, some alternatives. We did look at Terraform at one point, we had some products on our, on our uh, portfolio that did use Terraform for a lot of their infrastructure as code. Um, and then I think uh, overwhelmingly, we decided that we wanted to sort of keep all of the commercial products to the side and see how much we could do, you know, on our own volition. 
And yeah. that led us to some pretty interesting experiences with the likes of like automating firewalls. Like, why do you need to run a firewall in the cloud? Well, guess what? There's some compliance things that you can easily check a check mark on that says, I've got some, you know, sort of security boundaries in place that can help us prove to our clients and our mm -hmm. auditors that we're that we're protecting our, our infrastructure effectively. Well, if you don't automate that and you build these massive like EC2 instances, I mean, I think the costs in and of themselves, you know, exceed what your on-prem costs are from a capital versus OpEx ex experience. We could invest $500,000 in a couple of hardcore firewalls on-prem, but then you run those virtual additions in the cloud and you eat that within a year. And then, you're, and then you're doubling that because if you're not paying attention to your performance, obviously you continue to grow, right? Mm -hmm. which, is a, which is a standard problem, I think, for a lot of tech companies is that we're growing, but we're not really making sure that our footprint is being contained, like storage, et cetera. And we, we run into that. So in a nutshell, the, the automating the infrastructure was super important because without that, I cannot easily deploy. I cannot easily maintain. And those two things are really, really important. Uh, imagine being in a situation where all of a sudden something's down and you, you you can't even you know log in and look at it right you have to have instrumentation monitoring et cetera et cetera so yeah no, and, uh, and, focus and, focus on automation is super important absolutely no and and you hit on this in the thing and in, in terms of regulated company it's essentially it's it's your audit log it's your controls implemented as code you know yeah. in terms of hey here's our document library that tells you about all of our Absolutely. Over here, right? And we and we and we dust it off from regular. And what's your peer? What's your peer review process? Yeah. How are you phase gating code commits? We ran yeah. into all of this, right? We wanted our developers, our engineers, right? We want them to be able to check in code and get it into production as fast as possible, right? Yeah. Safely and securely. Yeah. But yeah, if you're not if you're not careful, you 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 can you can sort of shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> Yeah, so, so you mentioned, you know, you've got this sort of you know, background in systems engineering infrastructure. You got yeah, your business degree, too. That's, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, business degree, too, believe it or not. I have a computer science and business degree. But uh, yeah, but, so you, you've got these this sort of distinct backgrounds. Who have been some of your influences along the way? Like what sort of either authors or methods or those have, have influenced your sort of thinking along this time? Yeah, so I, I would say like. In influences wise, there's a lot. I mean, I, I think um, I think if I were to distill it down to like one or two people, I'd, I'd be very hard pressed because after what I've been in the technology industry, I'm not going to date myself, but it's it's been quite a few years. Yeah. Um, and you run across a gambit of interesting people. I, you know, so I, I'll tell you this: from an influence perspective, obviously outside of tech, you know, my family is the biggest influence. Mm -hmm. So so bar none, right? My 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 partner and uh, uh, say partner in crime, my my spouse. Uh, she she's like one of the biggest influences in my life, and she keeps me sort of on the you know focus. And then my kids as well. I think I, I shared with you my daughter's graduating from VCU yeah. uh, with a psych degree, um, and she's graduating this December. And uh, just just hearing from the millennials, right? I'm, I'm a Gen Xer uh, at the tail yeah. end of Gen X, right? But hearing from millennials is very different sort of approach to life. So they're definitely heavy heavy influences on me as well. But I would say on the on the technical side. Obviously, you've got the iconoclast like Gene Kim. I, I met him a few years ago when I was working at MindBody Online, and we were talking about DevOps movements. And I think he was just getting started with releasing the Phoenix Project. So he sent me a copy of his book, and I devoured it in 24 hours, like less than that. Like I spent yeah. like that morning to night, I finished it. And I'm like, I love this book because it totally captures my life. Not just the fact that there's a guy named Wes that was the head of ops. <laughs> 
He was 300 pounds. I, <laughs> years ago, was 265 pounds. So like, there's some uh, corollaries wow. there. So he was really fun to, to get to know and listen to. And I've been to a couple of his talks. Then you obviously have Chaz Humble and John Willis. You know, uh, those, those are yeah. obviously uh, well-known in the industry. Um, and then I look at like other uh, business leaders out there. I really love what Satya is doing in Microsoft. I really love the Salesforce sort of vibe. That was what got me into the cloud was, was understanding the, the SaaS model and working on Salesforce and working with some of their, um, their uh, security resources to understand how to do like single sign-on uh, mm -hmm. and load balancing. And, and back then you, you, you didn't have a way to, to merge your, your uh, sort of your LDAP versus your Active Directory having two different like identity stores. So you had to yeah. do some magic on your load balancers to like inspect the packets and then send them to different places. You don't have to do any of that anymore. It's all, it all works for you. I mean, it's just incredible. So, so Benioff is obviously, I think from a, from a culture perspective, what they've done at Salesforce is just incredible. Um, and then obviously you look at like the likes of Amazon and, and Google and there's, there's a few there as well, but there's so many unsung heroes, Ryan. I mean, like I, I couldn't even, like I said, I, I struggled with this question because there's like, who else could I, could I bring up that's been such an influencer in my life? But uh, it's, any, it's anyone that I seek to understand a solution to a problem at some point or another <laughs> becomes yeah. embedded as, ah, I heard about that. This person said this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, I learned uh, a lot from it. So, yeah, it's a lot. It's, 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 it's everyone to some extent or another. Interesting. So, so what are some of the topics I mean, you mentioned? So you guys are sort of in the cloud these days, you, you've, you've sort of done it right um, at the right time. Yeah. What are some of those topics top of mind for you? And what are some of those things that, that are kind of like, this is where you're, you're pushing yourself to know? Yeah. More about? So I would absolutely say um, something that's very interesting to me right now is a concept called systems thinking. It's mm -hmm. uh, sort of like design thinking with managing complexity and chaos. Yeah. So I have this, this sort of phrase I've used at Cornerstone for quite some time. When you're dealing with uh, thousands of enterprise clients and all of them have very different, you know, compliance, you know, agendas, you have thousands of opinions on how do you run your, your system. And so when you get thousands of opinions, you're trying to figure out how do you satisfy all of these different, you know, variables. Um, it can get quite chaotic. So I, I coined the phrase at Cornerstone, like, you got to learn to surf the chaos, mm. you know? everything's not going to be a crisis. Everyone comes and in the ops world. I'll tell you this. Every, everybody comes to us looking for an answer. You know, this piece of software isn't running right. This isn't happening right. This ran well in this environment, but it doesn't run well over here. We've got a performance issue over here. We've got a dissatisfied client over here. So you're getting hit from your global support organization that unfortunately most companies doesn't know much about tech. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you tell them, well, I think we're dealing with a buffer overflow issue. And they're like, what does that mean? <laughs> so, so complexity, like systems thinking to me is trying to trying to understand what is happening in a global context. And, and so there's a there's a good book out there called systems thinking, managing complexity and chaos. And I've been sort of um, diving into that a little bit. The other things that I think are really interesting to me, uh, unified management, automation of disparate technologies, specifically multi cloud strategies. You know, mm -hmm. so how, how do you and I think you and I've talked about this as well. If you're a company and you're looking at your cloud strategy for the first time, you're going to have people that have different opinions on whether it's Amazon, Google, Azure, or in five to 10 years from now, if it's another cloud company that comes up. And yeah. so um, I, I think uh, for me, 
understanding how to manage all those technologies, like how do you how do you build a solution that allows teams to move effectively, that hits all of the checkboxes from a compliance perspective, like you checked in your code, you peer reviewed it, it's gone through the proper scanning process and sure you're not in, you know, injecting anything that's nefarious. Uh, how do you how do you attest to the auditors about that? I mean, there's all of that that's embedded within you know the backend systems yeah. that change from one provider to the next. So we might build CloudFormation and Amazon, but then you go to Google and you're doing something completely different with Terraform. Yeah. So I I don't think the industry's got a solution for this. I don't know if there's going to be one in the future. I see sort of aspects of it where companies come up and they say, ah. Like there's a company called Spectra, uh, I think it's called Spectra Cloud, and they're trying to figure out, and this is pretty cool, one of the uh, product uh, VPs that I met at Pure Storage went over there because they understood there was a need to help companies build Kubernetes clusters securely, mm -hmm. irrespective of which cloud provider you sat on. Yeah. And I thought that that was ingenious. I'm like, okay, here you go. You're building a solution that can be used in multiple ways. So why can't we have that on infrastructure as code? I think Terraform is getting close to that and some of these other ones, but or, or in our case, we had Puppet, obviously for infrastructure as code configuration yeah. management. That transfers across the board as well, but you still have an issue of, of, of cost effectivity, especially as you scale. Yeah. And so there's a lot of those little variables that you have to keep in mind. So multi-cloud is a definitely big strategy for me. And the third one I'll tell you is AI ops. AI hmm. ops, I think is really sort of an interesting thing. Um, I kind of liken it to flash storage, sort of disrupting the storage industry. Mm -hmm. So AI ops is like, well, great. You, you run the likes of, uh, I don't know, Logic Monitor versus Splunk versus any number of these tools and services, Sumo Logic, you know, um, yeah. gosh, there's so many of them are, that are out there. But, but all of them at some point or another require you to go in and say, oh, I want to monitor this piece of hardware or this software. Mm -hmm. And I have to understand, you know, what those particular variables and metrics are. But I don't really find that there's much out there that, and I think this is the next phase for like the monitoring and, and uh, alerting industry is like, is there something that can help us figure out root cause analysis? Like if you got, if you're monitoring everything, can we get more proactive, you know, versus waking up to a page that says you just ran out of storage within two days, right? Yeah. There should be something that can trigger much further in advance that says, ah, I'm detecting an abnormality over here. And that's where I think the likes of like Big Panda have tons of potential and we've, we've been looking at them for quite some time. Uh, they integrate with a lot of the different software components that are out there that we've used. Uh, Splunk's doing some pretty cool stuff with their, their like Seam products and services. We, we use them quite heavily as well. But I think AI ops, I think there's something there. I think as time goes on, operations teams won't need to have people literally sitting there looking at a console waiting for an alert. You know, you want the system to be tuned enough yeah. to where you can focus on more important work. And I think that's going to be a struggle for anyone that's come from a very classical, traditional IT ops mindset mm -hmm. into the cloud. And then on top of that, you obviously got to get your, your engineering and product teams engaged as well, which for me, there's a whole other topic about centralized versus decentralized product management. But those are, those are some of the things that I find most interesting. <laughs> no, those, those are awesome. And I think you, you hit on the end, you know, so your, your classic kind of, stereotypical ops person waiting for alerts to be pinged and try to triage it and do a couple levels of support and and then right. hope and then maybe kick a development. I, I see a lot more of our clients that, you know, there's an expectation on these teams to, to quote them, build it and run it too. 
And so there yeah. is a centralized ops and they lay it one of more of the foundational sort of things, but yep. there's a lot more ops awareness that's pulling being pulled into these teams versus right. entirely having that really big. And so what happens is the, the, the ops teams themselves are sort of getting smaller and more core focused. Right. These dev teams are picking up some of the responsibility. I don't know if it's some of the people always, but essentially some of the responsibility that comes with the care and feeding yeah. of, 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 of these infrastructures, the virtual infrastructures, if, if you were. And I think that that's a trend that's going to continue. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and have to bring that sort of knowledge um, sort of into there because, you know, a lot of times what happens to us is, you know, we'll, we'll see that model. Somebody's an on-call engineer. They, they go to hook up monitoring and the thresholds haven't been dialed in and it just lights up, you know, things all day and all night. And if you don't that dial that in, right? Yeah. Don't, and, 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 and developer engineers are kind of like, what is all this sort of stuff? You, yeah. know, you gotta get dialed in because otherwise it's like, dude, it's, it's broken again. It's you just got to yeah. turn it off. But now just seeing how much like just setting up the monitoring, all the tools you mentioned, that feels like a lot more part of sort of the, the, the these sort of full product teams, the expectation yeah. of those full product teams is including more of that. Oh, absolutely. I think that was something that was a, so that for us, it was a, a very interesting learning experience uh, and a learning curve to some extent as well. So you, you've got development product teams that may not necessarily have an operations background mm -hmm. that don't necessarily want to be on call, right? So you have to deal with that. I like to put these all under one basket of culture, right? So like if you were to do a, a podcast, Ryan, by the way, on culture, that'd be yeah. a, a very interesting one as well. But like, but like the culture of the organization, how prepared are you for product teams to own their stuff? And the experience has shown me that there are certain teams that are 100% capable. And we, we've seen that at Cornerstone, one of our teams in Auckland, was one of the first ones that like dived straight into end-to-end -end ownership of their product. And those guys set the, the bar so high. And, you know, and, then, and then at some point you got everybody else starting to come up and they're like, okay, that's cool. And they follow, they follow, they follow. And then you get architects that are like, wait, wait a minute, maybe that's good for that, but I want to do this over here. And you create a whole other sort of, you know, whatever it is that you're, that you're dealing yeah. with. It's interesting to me that the folks that really focus on doing it shifting left, and I'm not mm -hmm. just talking about automation, Ron, I'm talking about like security as well and compliance. Yeah. Cannot, I used to say performance, security, reliability. I think it's more like security, you know, performance, reliability, yeah. Yeah. you know, or the other two are sort of interchanged. But, you know, if you're not really shifting left, then you're going to deliver these products into the market. You may have some security problems and we've run into those across mm -hmm. any number of companies and you can see those on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis. So yeah, the getting getting those those product teams to own it and to really understand the end-to-end -end soup to nuts, like the monitoring aspects to the response, the triaging, the pager duty sort of alerts. What does that leave your IT ops organization in the future? And I, I remember years ago, I think it was Amazon that coined the phrase ops is dead. You know, hmm. IT ops is dead. Yeah, or no ops or this sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And and I, I sort of get it. But I kind of think ops as a maintenance track, you can't avoid it because you can say I don't huh. have ops in, in, in my infrastructure anymore. I don't have a classical IT ops or whatever, but you're still doing maintenance. You're yeah. still doing patching. You're yeah. still doing, you know, code releases. You're still addressing performance issues. So what ends up happening is the companies that are, are coming into the cloud straight up, they didn't even know it, but they're like, I am everything. I am IT combined into one person. I think that's really interesting. I, 10 years from now, I will be fascinated to see 
how many people have an ops as well as a software engineering background. That would yeah. be try really incredible to see. Well, you mentioned the shift left. I mean, I see it in sort of the detective and the preventative controls that are being put mm -hmm. in the pipelines and being put yep. in those, you know, kind of upstream. So it's, it's one thing to have a set of controls that thou shot adhere to these at the architecture review board sort of process. Right. It's another thing to say, hey, all your code's going to flow through this pipeline and we're going to harden it down and we're going to do scanning and we're going to do these things. Yes. And I think to me, that's the future of ops. It's, it's, it's funny, Don, who I work with, he used to talk about this is a security guy I used to work with and his nickname was Dr. No. Because Dr. No, basically, yep. no matter what you came in the security, he's like, nope, you know, and 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 so, and, and Don used to laugh and we joke about it. It's like, but you gotta say, if you're gonna say no, you got, you know, yeah, but he, here's a way to sort of solve that. I think part of the shift left is taking a lot of these things that have been known amongst security professionals, for example, yep. and written documents and codifying them. And then ensuring that your developer's code is flowing through a, a, a same set of pipelines that are built from, yeah. You know, code and that that's one thing the, the hard thing and we can detect challenges the real hard not to crack though is the automated sort of remediation of them because oh, yeah. we tend to stop at alerting right we tend to stop at hey there's a problem and maybe you have a clue but automation has doesn't really these days make that next step of i'm going to actually go try to solve yeah. it and maybe note if you add and so i've seen uh, that hit or miss like when done right uh you, you don't get Page a whole lot when when done wrong. Uh, you can quickly take your out data servers. Yeah, yeah. You take a whole fleet of hundreds of servers out in in one fell uh, instance. Yeah. Automation is a double edged sword, man. You, you, oh yeah. On that level, you better make sure you you, you have um, have it right because yeah. And you hit the nail on the head, Ryan. Like it's a double edged sword, and and also the fact that someone can just do something, and depending on your level of access, because there's always going to be someone yeah. that has God access. There's always someone that has to mm -hmm. have yeah, yeah. the keys to the kingdom. That person carries such an amazing amount of responsibility. And I'm speaking for myself because right now at Cornerstone, uh, you know, I have access to everything because I've run everything for the past six and a half mm -hmm. years. Yeah, yeah. So by that very definition, I am a dangerous, dangerous person to be messing around with any sort of technology if I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. So there's this concept of like non-tomfoolery, you, know? <laughs> yeah. you can look around, but you just can't touch anything, you know, sort of thing. But yeah, I think, I think the more that people, I think it's hard to retroactively automate. I think there's some things, well, let me, let me back up. In 1999, there was this great article that was put out by some professor that sort of said root cause analysis is sort of a, a futile effort hmm. because the more complex your system becomes, yeah. You end up you end up putting enough boundaries in place that you can you have effectively responded over the many years that you run your software that to, to say that it's one thing only mm -hmm. is a fallacy it's usually more than one it's usually yeah. someone that did something or it's maybe even code that was released 10 years ago that was never used which i always think is a very fascinating i'm just going to throw this out there yeah. it's like when someone says well that code's never been changed I'm like, you're right. It probably wasn't used either. So, yeah. you know? yeah. so it's like, you know, hey, you got, you just have to roll with these things. But uh, the retroactive sort of remediation, I think there are certain use cases that could be effective for. Like, if you know you just need to reboot the server because you have no, it, it's just a minuscule task. Fine, that that's good. But when you deal with some of these things where it's like um, our database that's hosting like literally five enterprise clients is now at 100% CPU, and we're getting latency reports on the front end. 
you know, automation is really not going to help you much there, except maybe scale it out and add more cores yeah. and more memory, you know, to remediate. But to get to the root cause, you know, that's still going to take some investigation. And maybe, maybe AI ops at some point gives you some historical context that could help you. But I, I agree with you. Absolutely. No, I, I think there is a misnomer. In fact, I used to teach this sort of uh, design thinking class, kind of the classic five whys. And uh, well, five whys is a nice little, neat little thing. But in reality, it isn't down to one thing, right? There's lots yeah. of related things. And you mentioned earlier, I think, I think Willis, and I think it was from him I learned about mental models and sort of um, him or, or somebody else work in the space. And my understanding of it is, you know, you and I have different mental models of even common things because we have different yeah. backgrounds and experiences, right? And so one of the challenges yeah. of complexity of these systems is these systems have grown beyond something that one person can sort of hold in their head. Right. And we're talking systems that are that big and complex. And so if we if it is too big for me to understand or you to understand, we're all going to understand bits and pieces of it. But we also have our mental models based on everything else. And so how do you coming up with that common visual? Maybe there's no such thing as a common visual. That's a real hard part of these systems, too, is because depends on your background. You know, these are complex beasts. And especially if you didn't build oh, it. Yeah. one thing you designed and built it and you, and you were there. It's another thing when you roll up and somebody else built it at some point, you're trying to figure yeah. out. Reverse know. engineering is one of the hardest things. I, I, used to, I used to love doing it because I was just so interested in, in yeah. tech and I would get deep into the code, deep in the database. I'm always like a generalist, a, you know, a, a jack of all trades, master of none. I always sort yeah. of coined this idea in my head that I should know enough about networks and databases to be effectively dangerous, but not never... <laughs> never being referred to as a database engineer or a network engineer. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely agree with you. Absolutely agree with you. Well, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking and we talked about shift left is, you know, the solar winds um, sort of hack has taught us that, you know, your pipeline better be damn secure too, yeah. right? Because, because now all of a sudden- to see if your code check-ins are valid. I mean, are you doing like, oh my God. I mean, you, yeah, dude, yeah. a, if your source isn't secure, Good grief. And I would tell you, if that happened to SolarWinds, and they've been around for a long time, I've heard at other companies like Microsoft, I've heard, you know, from people that have said, like, some of the most critical infrastructure is actually uh, hosted in some sort of Faraday cage, like where they keep the private keys yeah. or whatever, which I think is sort of cool. I'd love to go see it, but I can't find anything on the internet that says that's actually true. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, some companies do this like Microsoft, when they were releasing their Xboxes, they made sure that the, uh, the I think there was some, some, some sort of HSM technology that they, that they released, that they had to make sure that it was secure from the source and tamper resistant. Mm -hmm. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Ryan. Like if companies aren't looking at their source code repository as sort of like, if I'm a hacker, and by the way, in a prior life, I was sort of the white hat hacker versus the black hat hacker. Um, I would absolutely be looking for passwords. I'd be looking for code. I'd be looking at all the things that most of the people that are trying to manage systems may not be thinking about, right? And this just comes because, you know, naturally years and years ago when we're dealing with modems and stuff, systems were so far open that you realize most people don't secure their data personally or even on a, on a corporate level, you know? Right. I've seen guys, by the way, there's this, this one guy, and I'll, I'll stop here, this one gentleman, he, um, we hired him at a company I worked at to do a pen test. And this is years ago. The guy has since created his own company to automate pen testing results by way of all of the infrastructure's code that he came up with. But I remember this young guy, he had to be like 10 years younger than me, and he was sitting there and he would just be giggling all day long, finding holes. And we thought we were secure. 
He's like, no, 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 no. You're never a hundred percent. I always know this. You're never a hundred percent secure, but gosh, it could be like closer to 90 to 99%. But here's this guy three years later that's taken what he did as his knowledge base and has created an automated solution for us so that he can offer that as a product to his client base. I mean, you couldn't have done that years ago without having some of the technologies that we have in place today from an automation perspective. So, and then the last thing I'll say, uh, Ryan, is uh, something that was embedded in me talking about shift left and doing it right. The CEO at MindBody, one time after going through a massive denial of service attack, uh, called us all in. I, I joined that company right after because they had just come out of it. And his biggest issue was that there was silos of information in different people's heads. And he had this phrase where he was just like, right, S, you know, right S word, right, <laughs> bad word, <laughs> write stuff down, just write it down, put it somewhere so someone else can learn about it so we can get the knowledge out of people's heads and spread it across. Mm-hmm. That always spoke to me. And 10 years later, I've done that at every place I've gone to. I find the silos of pockets of information and I talk to those people. It's like, you may think that you have job security, but that's not real job yeah. security. You, your knowledge is job security, you know? like. Yeah. Understand that and then get that knowledge into other people's heads because who wants to be on call 24 seven, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, but you know, your knowledge is your career and your career is job security, not a company. Like our generation, Absolutely. our parents' generation came of age where it's like, you go work for a good company, you work there, I want what, 34 years, get good retirement. And so I think our generation, especially in the tech is, yeah, your knowledge and I, I like working at this company, but this doesn't work out. I'm going to go work at another company yeah. and provide my yeah. family and those sort of things versus you're right. Holding on to that kind of, you know, the holding on to the job mentality. Yeah. The um, tribes, so. man, I think tribes and I think, I think single stone, you guys got a, a good one. So I've met quite a few people there. Yeah. But there's tribes, a band of tribes of, of technicians and, and, and amazing software engineers and ops people that tend to like, I've seen them like run in circles. I've got sort of my circle in Southern California that I've worked with my entire life. And these are folks that I've known for years, but we all sort of work together. And it's not necessarily the company. The company is good, right? Like you want to be motivated to work at a company, but at the end of the day, it's the people. It's 100% the people. The company could have the most amazing product and vision and just lose it completely on culture, which is my last point about EQ versus IQ. It kind of goes back to some of the lessons I've learned in, in my journey in life is like, you can be smart as, as heck, but if you don't have sort of the emotional quotient to, to help smooth that out, it really does you no, no good. And you can kind of put that in a different sort of analogy in, in our conversation. It sort of pulls the same weight. That's awesome. No, it, it is about the people, even though it's been a lot harder than the last year, year and a half to deal with it. Um, but it is, yeah. it is about the people and the enjoyment of working with folks. So, yeah. so last question before we let you go, Wes, is what are you listening to uh, these days? Do you have a uh, like music or like books? Some, I had a, uh, Tom on this morning talk about books on tape is what he's really into. But what, what do you tend to have rolling through yeah. your ears these days? Well, so like I, I read a lot. I've got right now, my biggest problem is I, I have about six to seven books that I'm 50% of the way through because I get bored of one and I shift to the other. Um, so I, I won't, I don't do a, l- a lot of audio. At one point when I was driving up to LA and dealing with 405 traffic, yeah. I picked up an audio book as something I was interested in that wasn't tech-based by the way. It was just something engaging and interesting. And I think uh, the last one I, I, I uh, listened to was the, uh, what was it? The uh, security, the Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration, um, Maddow, I think it was Mad Dog. I can't remember his name. He had a book that he wrote, and I listened to that, and it was really his his sort of 
thought on how he dealt with the administration in those four years and why he left. You know, he had no plans to be to be in that position. So that was the last book that I read or, or, or heard on the audio uh, side. But music wise, um, fairly eclectic. I'm, I'm, right now, I've got Spotify and I've had Pandora for years. Okay. I've had it so long that I just it's got every sort of my likes in there. So I know I can pull up anything and, it, and it's just going to play what I want. But I've really been dabbling into Spotify because they've got a lot more like artists out there. So I'll throw you out one. Um, a good friend of mine introduced me to this band called Chris Robinson Brotherhood. And I'll tell you, this is a very sort of, it's, it's more classic folk rock Americana. Maybe it's just rock Americana. I don't know what genres are anymore. It's just music. Yeah. <laughs> but this guy, he can play more songs in the key of D than I have ever heard of, right? And he's got one song that's 12 minutes long and he's literally playing the D chord, but you're like, oh my gosh, it sounds so different because he's playing all up and down the neck and he's got all this beautiful music that he's got going on. And it's just yeah. fantastic. I've never even heard of him before, but uh, I've been getting back into music in my life and uh, I, I play on, on the side and one of my friends said, uh, you got to check this band out. So I did and uh, wow, pretty amazing. Other than that, um, there's a lot, there's a lot more, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Chris Robinson, the Black Crows, is um, same, yeah. same, same yeah. guy. Nice. Yeah, nice that's him. I didn't even know it until he's like, hey, Chris Robinson, Brotherhood. I went in there and was like, oh, Black Crows. And I started listening to the music and I was like, this is cool stuff. Very relaxing. For someone like nice. me that likes to play guitar, you know, it's easy to follow. Nice. Well, Wes, man, thanks for coming on the program. It's, it's always enjoyable to chat with you and catch up. And uh, anyway, uh, take care. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to another discussion.